0: Welcome back to a fairly infrequent series here on the podcast. I believe this is only the fourth entry in our Flying Solo series. Um, Of course, I did several years ago a little overview of my watch through of the films of David Cronenberg. And then Isaac has done his two Flying Solos on the the Transformers movies that he watched, the uh, Abridged Commentaries. So for me returning to the feed... I had actually intended to do this when I finished my Orson Welles retrospective earlier this year, going through all of his films, which was an amazing retrospective. I would highly recommend his career, just like I did with Cronenberg. So many fantastic films, many films I feel like have in some ways fallen through the cracks. Um, Maybe I will eventually try to get them covered on the podcast, some of the ones that I feel like deserve more attention. Um, But since... Over the past year, I've been going through this Akira Kurosawa uh, retrospective. I realized that I'm already getting to the point where some of the original ones that I watched, some of the early movies that I watched last year, are starting to get a little bit fuzzy. I went back and I rewatched one of them, and I was like, oh, you know, if I'm going to do this flying solo on them, I should probably try to get to some of this stuff while it's still fresh enough in my memory to give it a solid little, uh, you know, couple minute discussion. And so I decided what I was going to do, especially because he has such a big filmography, 30 films. I thought I would do 15 on the first half and 15 on the last half and do the same thing I did with the David Cronenberg discussion. Go through film by film and, yeah, talk about it for a minute or two, just what I think the highlights are, what I think it brings to his career and, and whether you should seek them out. And so... Um, but the first film that Kurosawa directed, his first feature, was Senshiro Sagata from 1943. Um, this film, released during wartime, went through some censorship, and several reels were cut and destroyed and, and lost forever. Um, Kurosawa mentioned throughout his career that he was very much inspired by American cinema and British cinema. And due to the you know complications of the war... The wartime government did not appreciate those uh, Western influences, so they trimmed out quite a bit from the movie. And you can definitely feel that it's a little bit chopped up. That was one of the disappointments with the movie and why it doesn't uh, fully grasp me. There's still some beautiful photography. There's uh, the beginnings of some actors that would continue throughout his career. Some of them show up as early as this film. And so for the historical value, I think this is quite interesting still. And there is lots to like in it. But what exists, ultimately, I would say is a flawed film. And as a start to his career, you know, a little bit bumpy. Now, uh, this is first of his samurai films, martial arts films. And, and it follows Sin someone from the kind of more undeveloped districts living in the country and comes to the city to try to, you know, learn new ways of practicing martial arts. And that leads to various complications, a little bit of romance mixed in. Very classic Kurosawa kind of viewpoints and stories. He always likes to look at people from the more underclass. So that starts here. And there's a cool master. The master figure in that, I think, is has some really fun moments. Um, but yeah, overall, definitely a flawed film. But for Kurosawa fans and for martial arts um, archivists, I would definitely recommend checking this one out still. I'm not sure if this matters, but I did go through. And for each film, I wrote a little rating at the side. I always do a 10 scale with points. So it's a pointless scale because almost nothing has ever been rated a 10 for me. Because I have so many so many other ways to tinker to try to get to that perfect film, which probably for me doesn't exist. But Sensura Sagata got a six, six 6.6, if that matters. <laughs> um, but then we go to the most beautiful. Again, this one is very much... Under the influence of the wartime government, this is what I would call a propaganda film. It's about these women working as volunteers in this. Uh, I think it's they're producing glass for like telescopes, something like that. Um, and yeah, again, it's it's, it's kind of a, a film about the spirit of people working together and the the pride of the, the Japanese working class doing what they can to support their troops. That that's really what the film's about. And we see kind of their, the trials and tribulations of them trying to reach these goals and trying to prove that they, even though they're not on the battlefield, they're still doing their part to support the country during this, this time of trials. And yeah, it, it has that feeling of a propaganda film. It has that air of this is something that's being done to, you know, stoke the heart and the kind of uh, nationalist pride yeah, of the Japanese people at that time. You can just feel it and i think there's some beautiful photography i think there's some fun performances Uh, but that overriding kind of rah-rah japan kind of feel i never really care for that in films there's something that just feels you know i'm usually not someone who's bothered by kind of agenda driven movies that's never something that concerns me but when it comes to something that feels like it's clearly put out from the government as a way to stoke again, a, a nationalist streak. Maybe nationalist isn't the right word, but a sort of um, perhaps jingoistic vibe of look how powerful the people from our country are. Don't you have so much pride for your for your country? That kind of quality just I find off-putting. And so this movie definitely featured a, a wave of that, and that's a little bit off-putting. But I could have gone with it more if I didn't feel like the actual story and the conflicts within it just come off as rather dry and yeah, I don't feel like the stakes are actually that high. And so the film, to me, falls flat. Um, I rated that one a 5.1. Not a favorite of mine. Definitely not. <laughs> um, but then we get to The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail. Uh, this one is another samurai film, you know, period film. And it follows this, it's actually a very similar uh, plot to The Hidden Fortress, which I'll talk about in the second half in in, in several ways, where we have this prince who's, whose land has fallen under the rule of uh, invading force, and he's trying to, to move through to a safer safer region. he's trying to cross through some borders and some checkpoints, and his king's guard, or whatever you want to call it, his group of samurai who are meant to uh, serve his household, they're all dressed up as monks, and they're trying to deceive this this border guard and this, this government official there as well, that they're just monks passing through. And... I know it was based on some sort of uh, old fable in Japan and you can feel that vibe in it and I think it has a, a really cool air to it. I think the photography's great in it. There's this funny Porter character, another kind of lower class, kind of uh, in for the audience character. This guy plays with a little bit of comic relief. Kurosawa always liked to have that lens pointed at the, the lowest people on the, the economic rung or the class rung. And yeah, I think this this one here stands out as just a fun little bit of that uh, Greek choir element mixed in as well. And yeah, The Men Who turn the Tiger's Tale, it's a, a short film in terms of it's not actually fully theatrical length. I believe it's only about 58 minutes long, something like that. So it's one you can knock out really quick. Looks great. Some funny moments. Curso as well has a streak of humor that runs through many of his films that... I think is a part of his work that maybe doesn't get as mentioned as much, but I think that he's got a great sense of humor in his films. And the Man Who Tread in the Tiger's Tale is just a little, little short stop in his career. I think it's absolutely worth checking out. That one I rated a six point one. So hmm, surprised that that's lower than Senshiro Sagata, but or Sanshiro. But I will say for the Man Who Tread in the Tiger's Tale, I liked it a lot more in my second viewing. The first viewing. I rated it a 5.7 and I just thought it felt very slight and didn't feel like there was much going on. Um, I'll say for the early part of this uh, Kurosawa retrospective, the first six films, I just was kind of like, okay, you know, these are fine, some of these, but I don't really see what's so special about this guy yet. So yeah, on my first viewing of uh, The Men Who Tread in the Tiger's Tail*, I was still kind of just coming to grips with what his style is, what his goals are with what he, with the movies he produces, you know, so, so I, I think coming around uh, just recently in the past two weeks, coming back to the miniature and the tiger's tail, I think I came to appreciate it more. Um, but moving on to Sensura Sagata part two from 1945. Um, there are things I liked, but ultimately this was another flawed film. Um, and up until this point in his career, easily the most flawed. Yeah. I did the, the plot just felt much more thin um, I like the character of Sunshido, but I didn't really need this sequel. Um, they also have this American character in there that it just felt silly. it it once again felt like a piece of propaganda. It was kind of like, oh, America versus Japan. they have a they have a martial arts match where it's like, okay, the American's gonna do boxing. the Japanese man's gonna do judo or or something like that. And it's like, who who's the superior fighter in this mode? And it just, yeah, it again felt like propaganda stuff and it just felt silly. Especially considering what I've seen from his work now. It felt much, much lesser. Like it almost felt like a commercial project that was more hoisted on him. I don't know if that's the case, but that's just the vibe that I got from it. So yeah, that one I rated a 5.9. Yeah, not a not a high mark for his career. Definitely not. Um, But then we get No Regrets for My Youth. I'll say I did skip, there was a movie... In between this i believe it was called the people who make tomorrow something like that i didn't include that in this retrospective because curacao himself doesn't include it as part of his career uh, it was directed by several different people and he was only on for a week or two so just in case anyone's curious why that's not included um, but for no regrets for our youth um this one i like the story i think it's well performed it's about kind of wartime influences uh, even though it takes place before the war, it's about this. Uh, I guess you'd say he was like a, like a pacifist, um, a, a student. The early parts of revolve around this school, and we see this. Yeah, student who's very much against the government's actions, and he gets himself into some trouble and gets taken into uh, custody by the police. And when he comes out, he's pretty jacked up, and we just see this woman who was who had fallen in love with him during the university days or at least you know started their relationship and always really liked his outside of the box thinking she kind of takes charge of him and and there's a whole bunch of drama there i won't spoil too much maybe i've already spoiled a bit more than i should for the no regrets for our youth um i think this one has a lot of the hallmarks of kurosawa again going later into his career a lot of intense family drama a lot of deep emotional scenes. Uh, but for this one, I feel like the ingredients didn't all come together quite well. And I would say that it just doesn't feel super engaging. I, th- I think it was still a solid movie and definitely in his evolving filmography. I think this one is a one to highlight from his early work. Out of his first uh, 10 movies, this would be a little bit higher on the list than some of the others. But still, I would say that this one is... Not one that you need to check out if you're just getting into Curacao. This is one to save if you're not uh, starting right from the beginning. Um, Moving on from No Regrets for Our Youth, I'll switch over to my favorite from this early period, Uh, One Wonderful Sunday, at least so far. There's a couple in its first ten movies that I like more than this. But One Wonderful Sunday, it takes place... uh, It came out in 47, so kind of just after the war was tidying itself up. And it focuses on this this couple who are extremely low on the socioeconomic scale. they're very, very poor and the boyfriend has become really depressed lately and he's kind of lost his luster in life and he doesn't understand you know what the point it is in trying anymore if he feels like he can never get anywhere and he's always stuck in the same spot and his you know girlfriend's getting real fed up with him and she's like, come on, you know how often do we get to see each other anymore? We're both so busy with other things. Let's try to take this day and just, you know, put all those issues aside and have one great day together. And and this was the real one in my initial watch. You know, I was watching up to this film, five films beforehand. And I was just kind of like, okay, you know, I'm really, I'm really not seeing a ton here. There's some great photography, but all of these feel in some degree flawed. This was the first film that really captured me all the way through. And I think the performances are really good. I think the style and flair is interesting, especially in the last half. There's some stuff there that feels very um, modern and as if it was really trying to do something different. And highly recommend One Wonderful Sunday. It's a very cute little romantic comedy slash drama. And I think in the the time period, I think it feels really uh, like a little bit of a time capsule to some degree as well. So definitely check that one out. One Wonderful Sunday, 1947. Um, but moving on to kurosawa's seventh feature drunken angel this is an interesting one so i didn't mention up to this point but uh, takashi shimura um he'd been appearing in a, a couple sporadic films I, I think actually up to this point the only one that he appeared in was the men who Tread on the tiger's tail now that i think about it, i think that was the only one he was in um but drunken angel is the first standout for him with kurosawa's work and in particular, the first appearance of Tashiro Mifune, who would become a extremely frequent collaborator with Kurosawa. I mean, he was Kurosawa's go-to leading man, and for good reason. This guy is amazing. And Drunken Angel, we get playing this, I wouldn't say wannabe mobster, but he's a small-time Yakuza, and at the start of it, he winds up getting injured and having to go see this this doctor, this kind of... Maybe not super on the level doctor played by uh, Takashi Shimura. Uh, This doctor is an alcoholic. He's a titular uh, drunken angel. And he sees in this Yakuza that he's got some serious health problems. It's not just a surface level injury, but that this kid's got early case of tuberculosis. And the doctor, he's kind of an abusive asshole, but at the same time, extremely caring about his patients. To the point of being abusive and pestering towards them and we get the, these two, two together having this this drama where the doctor keeps trying to insert himself into this younger yakuza's life and trying to get him to to care about himself and try to get him to you know deal with this health issue that he has and the yakuza member he's filled with uh, i guess you'd say toxic masculinity he refuses to have any vulnerability refuses to see any sort of weakness or believe that he could possibly be sick. And even though he's putting himself in all these reckless situations, you know, as well continues to just be like, no, no, I'm there. Nothing's going to put, come through me. I'm, I'm as tough as tough as nails kind of guy. And it's just a very powerful drama. I think that, um, I can, this is another one that really stands out from the early Kurosawa films. Um, Takashi, uh, Shimura, I think, pops off the screen as he always does, and for an early role for uh, uh, Mafune, you can really see that this guy has a dynamic quality to him that that you, you don't just find every anywhere. I mean, this guy he really had something, and especially as we go along, we'll see that this kid has that that he ended up having even more. Um, this one got a seven for me. Uh, next, we get the quiet duel. And and by the way, one, one Wonderful Sunday, by the way, had 7.1 for me. Uh, but next we get The Quiet Duel. Uh, this one I actually watched out of sequence. It, didn't, it wasn't on the Criterion channel. And I only ever get the Criterion channel, you know, maybe every couple months. So I try to kind of watch everything I'm going to watch on it in quick succession. And this one they had for free on YouTube. So I pushed it aside and I left it for a while before I finally came to it. But moving on to The Quiet Duel... Um, this is another really excellent drama. This one centers around a doctor who, during an operation, cuts his finger and winds up contracting syphilis from his patient. And his life just kind of kind of falls apart after that. and we see his next uh, year or two in life just trying to just trying to deal with the aftermath of that things falling apart in his personal life. I don't want to spoil too much but some different turns with the various characters that he interacts with and some really, really great performances. Once again, Toshiro Mifune uh, is in the lead and he is excellent as always. Uh, Takashi Shimura is once again, his kind of right hand uh, assistant character. uh, This one playing his father and the two of them had just a great relationship in it. And, yeah, there's just a lot of really heavy, dramatic weight that really Kurosawa just nails, and all the performers just carry it so well. And Naruko Sengoku, um, she plays this nurse who the doctor helps. She's about to commit suicide, and the doctor takes her in and gives her a job and tries to help rehabilitate her life. Um, she plays an excellent supporting character there as well. And she would continue to work with Kurosawa. She started in Drunken Angel the year before. And would yeah, regularly appear. And she's just a, a really great actress as well. I, I think she can carry a lot of the dramatic weight well. This one's a little bit of a different type of character for her. And I definitely uh, appreciate her efforts. And yeah, just, just another really strong drama. Um, at this point in his career, I think that he was doing a lot better with the contemporary dramas rather than the, the period samurai flicks. Uh, but that would change uh, quite soon, but I'll get to that shortly. Um, This one I rated 7.4. So next, we're going to go over to Stray Dog, 1949. Um, This is his ninth feature. Uh, This one follows the story of a young detective who ends up getting his gun stolen, and the person who stole his gun used it to commit a crime. And it's another one with a lot of emotion to it. This one's a little bit more action-heavy, but... There's a lot of guilt going on. This is again Toshirō Fune in the lead, and Takashi Shimura plays his uh, kind of older detective who's a little bit more hardened and a little bit more callous to what the world is. I think their dynamic in that regard paints a, just a cool picture. I, I think there's a there's a, a strength of chemistry there that you can definitely feel that started well in Drunken Angel and continues here, and. This movie, at a certain point, just has kind of a, a fever pitch quality to it. And I think that, that some of the later action stuff hits quite well and shows uh, that Kurosawa has a, a good grasp on that kind of suspense. I gave that one a 6.7. Definitely solid. Definitely recommend that one as well. That's another one that you can just seek out at any time. You know, If you're just wanting to see a Japanese kind of noir film from uh, from the late 40s, you know, I'd recommend that one. <laughs> if you ever get in that mood <laughs> um but next his 10th film this is one that i'm sure most people have heard of I'm, this is one of the ones that's always elevated as one of the greatest films of all time and that's uh rashomon uh, rashomon once again stars tashiro mifune um and it's all wrapped up in this this trial about uh this rape and murder and one of the really cool things about rashomon is It's got this kind of wraparound segment of all these people post the trial just kind of discussing what they think and they're shocked and some of them are witnesses, some of them are just people there not directly involved in the trial but, you know, trying to understand. And when it comes to the trial, we we get all these different perspectives showing the the moment of the crime and see how these different people viewed it or how they are maybe trying to present a certain point of view. And this is the first of the Kurosawa films that really highlights his innovative quality as director, and Mafune gets to play just a super colorful and big character, and yeah, it. This is one of those ones that it's it's not a wonder that it's hailed as one of the greatest films, and definitely one that I would recommend. And one of the nice things about it is it's one of the great Kurosawa films that isn't over three hours, it's it's a really easy 90 minutes, you know, and, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And if you're new to Kurosawa, I think that this one wouldn't be a bad one to jump in on. That one I rated a 7.8. Um, but continuing on, we have another really cool film, this one called Scandal from 1950, same year as Rashomon. Scandal is about this painter who ends up picking up this actress just on a whim, he, he they meet up on the road and he's like, Okay, I'll give you a ride to your hotel and they become fast friends and at one point are caught in a semi indecent moment, only indecent in terms of just cultural standards. They both happen to be bathing, and he came up to visit her in her hotel room and put his towel over her over the banister, right next to her towel, and these paparazzi folks happen to snap a picture of it. And really the most of the movie is about this lawsuit from the painter and the actress. One, him trying to convince her to join him in the lawsuit and be like, we need to stand up against these people who are just, they don't care about truth. All they care about is callous money-making off of uh, ruining people's reputations. And there's also a lot of talk about just societal expectations in general and the callous, perverse way that media can manipulate people. And and one of the standouts in the movie, and this this is this leads to some fantastic stuff, is a uh, Takashi Shimura appearing as the lawyer, and he's again from very low on the economic uh, rung. He's not really seen with much respect, seemingly, and he just offers pro bono to help these people out. And we see this lawyer being kind of swept into a higher economic wrong and, and how that can affect his life and I, I think that that one's another one that I would strongly recommend. Scandal I think is among the top tier of his first fifteen. I would put that in the top five easily. I rated a six point nine. Well actually now that I'm thinking about it the top five for this block, the top the first fifteen, that's actually some pretty steep competition now that I think about it. <laughs> but either way I would highly recommend Scandal. Um but the next film that he made, The Idiot, 1951, based off of the um, Dostoevsky novel. Kurosawa, I saw mention that he was always a fan of Russian literature and was just happy to get a chance to adapt. And unfortunately, this one was another one that was dealt with a lot of cuts that in a way make the movie just not work as well. Um, Same as Censura Sagata, except this time it was just the studio doing it because his original cut was like five hours long something like that and so they were like okay screw you curse hour we're cutting this thing almost in half like we would can't possibly release it as that long and so for the first maybe hour or so 40 minutes they keep having to do these little breaks where they like stop the movie and we get just a block of text and they explain okay this is who this character is this is how he relates to the other characters and this is what their kind of motivation is going forward, just because they cut out all that stuff. So that stuff makes the film suffer a little bit, especially getting into it early on. It feels choppy, it's distracting, and you kind of wonder, like, why the hell is this happening? But if you can get past that stuff, oh boy, the idiot, this is really something. This is an incredible movie. It's about this character who experienced an extremely traumatic war event, And his life going forward was shaped by it. It it caused sort of a, a fracture in his mind. And we see kind of the indignity and also the unique way that it shapes his interactions with other people. This element of him being an idiot, as they call him. And as he himself, you know, puts himself down as, oh, anytime he makes some sort of social faux pas, he's just kind of like, oh, you know, I must be more crazy than even I realized that I would do this or I can't. You know, it's a way for him to always disparage himself, even though certain characters around him are attracted to him, pulled to him because of this quality that he has, this way to kind of see past the bullshit on the surface and kind of go direct to uh, what the point is. And it gets wrapped up in this, this crazy romantic dynamic, this kind of love square. And Tishiro Mifune is on the other side of that, is this kind of a, he kind of reminds me of Heathcliff, from uh, Withering Heights, a little bit, this character who has this romantic attraction that begins to turn him into this 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 very dark character. This this person who kind of lives removed from society, and their dynamic in the movie is incredible. Really, really is incredible. Um, but some of the the female characters I think really really pop in this one. Kurosawa always tries to have strong female characters in his movies these two, the two uh, women in the, in the love square, I think they have some very strong dynamics in the way that they pull in. And in terms of performances, this is some of the best work that Kurosawa has been involved with up to this point. Some incredible work all around many scenes that are just people standing in a room talking are so captivating. And yeah, many tears were shed with this watching for me. That one I rated a 7.9. It gets just a few knocks because of that, um, those issues. Um, But the next one on the list is 1952's Ikiru. And oh boy, this one, this is a big deal. So this was Kurosawa's 13th feature. And once again, starring Takashi Shumura. And oh man, what can I say about Ikiru or To Live in English? This is the story of a bureaucrat, civil servant who served for 30 years, living as if he was dead. He kind of had no spark of life to him. He was just kind of caught in this system and become a creature of the system, just a creature of constantly passing things off to to someone else and in that way, passing off his own life vaguely to the future or to his son who barely cares or acknowledges his existence. And he finally discovers life again in the face of his death as he gets a diagnosis of cancer of uh, only a few months left to live. And he tries to come to terms with this and find a way to feel alive again and to feel like he had a purpose and leave a legacy. And when you break it down to those bare elements, it doesn't seem like much, uh, but digging into the film... The performance by Takashi Shimura, the innovative and beautiful uh, direction uh, by Kurosawa, the, the score, some really, really fantastic music, great sense of intensity uh, during the early portions of it um, when he's discovering about his diagnosis. Really, this is, if, if you know anything about Kurosawa at all, uh, most people can name off Seven Samurai, Rashomon. And if there's a third Kurosawa film that seems to have been elevated beyond his filmography, a, a film that just exists as part of the tapestry of, you know, the, the hailed as the greatest movies of all time, uh, Ikiru is usually the third one that um, people will know when it comes to yeah, the famed filmmaker Kurosawa. And seeing the film, uh, this, this one I actually watched out of sequence as well. I came to it a little bit late. It's understandable why this one would be elevated so much more than some of the other fantastic dramas that we've already discussed during this little bonus episode. This one just is such a powerful film just all around. An incredible performance by Takashi Shimura really really does just just bring you in, captures you just with just an expression can just bring so much emotional depth. Um, the way that they structure the film is interesting and unexpected and packs the punch all the more there's a kind of a turn in the movie around the middle of it and for the next hour we see see the movie from a different kind of angle and that I think was very Kurosawa choice in a way and a choice that accentuates the emotion so powerfully I I can't recall the last time I watched a movie that had brought me to tears as frequently and as deeply as this movie did, some incredible emotions that were uh, difficult. It was it was a, a very strong response that I had to this movie, and and seemingly many other people do because again, it's elevated as one of the greatest films of all time. Um, and honestly, when it came to putting my little rating, because again, when I have my uh, my OneNote page for all the Kurosawa films, I rate them as I go along and mark them off. You know, as like a I find it easier to keep up with these things if I can tick off a little a little box that, oh yeah, I watched this one. <laughs> and so part of that package is giving it my uh, my number rating. And trying to rate this movie, it felt like it made the whole process of putting the little number next to it arbitrary and, and pointless. Because you could never capture the emotional experience that I had watching the movie with just the number. Um, so I, I just was like, fuck it. You know, even though it's almost an impossibility to get a 10 out of 10, I gave this thing a 10 and just, yeah, it's it's very rightly considered among the best movies uh, ever made. From what I've seen, you know, which is a lot of films at this point, uh, this is, yeah, one of the ones that I would elevate as, if you're a film fan, not just a fan of, you know, old cinema, Japanese cinema, or Kurosawa in particular, I think that at some point in your life you should try to see Ikiru or to live because um, it's well, well worth your time. Um, but that brings us on to another film that I just mentioned, number 14, Seven Samurai. And of course, Seven Samurai is perhaps the most famous of Kurosawa's films. Um, went on to have mass influence going forward on Westerns as a whole. Um I would say war films, uh, Star Wars, perhaps take some influence from this. The Caravan of Courage, um, perhaps take some influence from this. And yeah, no, I I mean, what, what can I say about Seven Samurai that hasn't already been said? Um, we are definitely going to be reviewing this on the podcast at some point. It's three hours and 30 minutes long. I never feel it. All the characters, pop in their own way some of them more than others there's definitely some of the samurai that don't feel like they got the attention they deserve even that three hour and 30 minute runtime. but the ones that count the ones that the story is about i think pops incredibly the action is stunning like i i think the way he stages shots the way he composes them i think some of that stuff is like i said stunning the class elements that Kurosawa has been putting into his films for a long time now, I think comes to a head beautifully in this. There's some very interesting dynamics um, and interesting ways of challenging the kind of allure of the samurai genre and the samurai uh, class in general in the way they, they honor and elevate. This one casts a different look on that. Uh, it has a great way of peeking into the human condition and human spirit in different ways uh, that I think make it feel extremely well-rounded and Toshiro Mafune and Takashi Shimura. I think this is some of their most standout work here, but really, really fascinating stuff. And, and there's been, I, I keep mentioning those two because they're usually at the, the head of the, the tables, like the head of the casts, but there's so many other people who have shown up in previous Kurosawa films that continue on and have been in his movies for a long time before this movie and up to it. And I think Seven Samurai gives a chance for so many of the kind of bit players in Kurosawa films to have a bigger role and to really catch your attention. So I gave it a nine out of 10. And I'm sure on repeat viewings, I'm going to give it higher. I don't even know why I just gave it nine. <laughs> I could have given it a 9.5. It it wouldn't have mattered. It's, it's the same. It's just a excellent film. And it's no wonder that it's considered one of the greatest of all time. Um, But continuing the praise onto the last film in this half of the uh, discussion, we have, I live in fear. Wow. No, this film, this is an incredible film. It stars Toshiro Mifune as this older man looks to be maybe in his sixties, could be even seventies. And one, I think he captures that vibe quite well. You know, I, maybe partway through, I stopped remembering that it was him, or at least stopped thinking about the fact that it was a younger man playing older. And it's this, this big drama about this family battle over the patriarch of the family, this, this, this old man who is terrified of atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs. And he becomes convinced that Japan is a wash, that that they need to get out of the country. And it's a quite wealthy family. And he wants to basically sell everything that they own and move his entire family group to Brazil to this little farm. And the family group's complicated. There's the main kind of household that you know are all the kind of established, proper family. But he had multiple mistresses with their own children, and he wants to take everyone. So there's all there, there's these different levels of dynamics within the family that I think is really interesting. Um, we get Takashi Shumura as part of the family court that he goes to and he becomes kind of captured and haunted by by the the whole dilemma because they're taking the dad to court to be like okay he needs to be put into a conservatorship he's not making wise choices he built this bunker that or he started building this bunker because he heard that oh the the winds from an atomic bomb would be blowing from the south so he built a bunker in i think the north then he read another thing that he would be coming from the north, so he halted production and had to, you know, scrap that whole project as a for a big loss. So the family's terrified that he's just going to drain all their money by going off on these crazy uh, fears, and it's just a, an immensely tragic story. And the way that it plays out between the different elements, of the family, between the court itself. Oh man, many many tears were shed by me watching this. This was. An incredibly painful viewing but an excellent film and i would give this one like another of the highest recommends if if you're only going to see you know five curacao films make sure that you see i live in fear as part of that group and probably the strongest or at least one of the strongest of his contemporary films uh in this first half um and and this has gone on longer than i was expecting um but yeah i would say for this first half you know Tons of great films. It took me a little bit. It took me the first six films to really get into Chris filmography. But the more I go on, the more I'm just continuously blown away. I know people always elevate him as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Many of his films are listed on those lists of, you know, you gotta see this before you die. But even with that reputation, I'm still continuously surprised and captured by just how how great these films are and I feel like strangely there's a couple Kurosawa films that get thrown out there as okay these are the great ones that everyone needs to see and Kurosawa himself is a great filmmaker check out his work but I'm still surprised how many of these films come up that I don't know anything about never heard anyone mention like I live in fear I never heard that title before and I sat down to watch it and it was just stunning and I've had that a couple times where I'm just like, wow, why isn't, like, who picks and chooses which ones get elevated? Why don't some of these get thrown out there with uh, some of the other ones? Why is The Hidden Fortress elevated over something like The Idiot? Uh, The Idiot, I thought, was just just amazing, you know, and yeah, I just think it's a curious dynamic. And I think even for the reputation that Kurosawa has, I feel like some of these other films could be more in the forefront of, uh, you know, films that people need to see. Um And hopefully this podcast, you know, hopefully for some of you out there who have always been curious about Kurosawa, hopefully I gave you some examples of top ones to pull out. Um, I will do a little bit of a top five here. These are definitely the ones from the early half of his career that you definitely have to check out. This isn't in order. These are just the ones that I would very highly recommend. Um, Seven Samurai, of course. Uh, I Live in Fear, The Idiot, Ikiru, and Rashomon. Um, I think those are the absolute must-sees. Um, but for the rest of the films I mentioned, a lot of strong ones. But yeah, no, very strong half his career, and I've only just skimmed the surface of his uh, the next 15 that I have to watch, and already I've seen some great stuff. So very excited to get to that, and hopefully that'll be coming out not long after this. But until then, I'll see you all on the next one. Thanks.